How's it going back there, guys? Okay. Whenever I see conversation in the sound booth, I start to go, I should wait and kill time. Uh, <laughs> and ad lib, which is always very terrifying for Jason. <laughs> He's like, oh, please, somebody. Okay, I'm here to give announcements. So good morning to you. Welcome. Welcome to those of you that are at home with us this morning as well. Um, it has been a long time probably since you've seen somebody wear one of these bad boys. Um, these are our kids' church uniforms, actually. And um, we are doing a test run of kids' church programming this morning to kind of wrap our brains around what that might look like for the fall. And so we have like five kids there and five adults. It's pretty great. We're going to have a fun morning. So if it gets a little bit loud for you guys, you just know that Trevor and I totally cut loose and uh, <laughs> we're having way more fun than you. So if things get really stressful for you this morning, you head next door. We have programming just for you. Um, so we're excited about that. Um, like I said, this is just a test run. Some of you are like, hey, wait, I didn't hear anything about that. Maybe I would have brought my kids. We did that intentionally. <laughs> we kind of wanted to have a small group to play with today. Um, and we, we got the question, why would you change things? We had such a great thing going before COVID. And I agree with that 100%. Um, but COVID shut us down. And our systems and our rhythms all look very different from a volunteer standpoint, from the number of kids that are coming in, from the way that we need to do programming for kids in a masked environment in a way that is a little bit safer for people. And so we're just trying to figure out what does this look like? So we're rolling with it. Um, and I am super excited for the launch of our kids programming in October. Um, and we will be very communicative with you um, when that launches and we're ready to go and ready to invite and receive um, your friends and your family as well. So to the real announcements this morning, um, first of all, I want to invite those of you that have not been in a life group before, if you're thinking, ah, I would really like to connect in community with other people. I want to invite you to come into a life group. We have groups that meet weekly online and in person. And depending on your comfort level with gathering with other people, we'd like to try and find a good fit for you so that you can come and be known, feel known, and then also pursue your relationship with God in community with other people. And that's my invitation to those of you at home as well. Um, simply because you're not comfortable coming to this larger gathering here doesn't mean that you wouldn't love being in an online community or in a really small, intimate, in-person community. And so if that's you, um, would you sign up by marking your online communication card? You go to brookviewchurch.com forward slash contact, and there's a communication card there that has a box that you can check that you're interested in a life group. But you can also go, also text the keyword group to the Brookview number as well. And so um, we'd like to, to just kind of know who is it that's interested in being in a group in the fall quarter. Our fall quarter will run the beginning of October until a week or two before Christmas. And so that would kind of be the time commitment that you're making in this season right now. So um, there was something that I was thinking about telling you about those, but just do it. Oh, I know what it was. If you were in a group in the spring, 
your group leader should have already reached out to you. And so you don't need to sign up for that unless, of course, your leader didn't reach out to you. That means there was a bit of a hiccup somewhere. Or maybe you didn't get back to your group leader and you're like, oh, maybe this would be the moment to get back to them. Um, and that just helps us in planning and knowing where is there room for people to go and what does that group environment look like for those people. So I'm so glad I remembered that. Um, all right, I'm going to be done. I already talked about the online communication card, and that's there not just for life groups, but also for any type of communication or feedback that you have for this morning. Um, enjoy the service. I'm going to zip next door. Chinese authorities have traced a new deadly virus back to this seafood market in the Today, city the of Wuhan. The World Health Organization officially announced that this is a global pandemic. The U.S. does not have enough coronavirus The unemployment testing. rate tripling to 14.7%. Coronavirus cases still high across the country. Students, teachers, and parents have been forced to adapt to distance learning. The Golden State, a record-breaking 2 million-plus acres have burned. The nation erupted into scenes of chaos, violence, and widespread destruction into the early morning hours. From Brazil to Iran, thousands have gathered to show solidarity with U.S. protests over the killing of George Floyd. Pfizer is shipping out the first doses of the coronavirus vaccine as we speak. Now, we can't force you to take a jab in the arm, but there are many jobs, perhaps, that can prevent you from working if you decide not to get vaccinated. You know, people are angry. I mean, on the internet, I see people are threatening to boycott restaurants that follow these guidelines. Several countries have offered assistance to Haiti, including the US, Panama, Colombia, and Mexico, among Family others. Family members and children trying to get to the airport, but being whipped back and beaten by Taliban fighters. All you Stranger Things, Fans can appreciate that. Um, so we, we started a, a four-week series last week that we're calling Strange Times because we are experiencing seismic cultural shifts these days. And, and the question that we really must always be asking is, as a community of followers of Jesus, how should we respond? And last week we looked at the importance of being a family and being a body in a culture filled with more and more individualism and, and tribalism. Um, today, we're going to kind of build on that a little bit. And to begin, I want to I start with a question. Who did you lose last year? And I don't mean to COVID-19. I, I don't mean to death or to disease. I, I mean, who did you lose to politics? Whether it was over anti-masking or the November election or conspiracy theories or BLM or whatever, who did you lose? Did you lose a friend, a college roommate, a family member, a parent, a sibling, a neighbor, a coworker? Sociologists tell us that we are now more divided, that our nation is now more divided than it has been since the Civil War. As you know, we're, our, our nation was built on the idea of e pluribus unum, right? Out of many, one. But lately, it feels like there's a whole lot of pluribus and not a whole lot of unum. You know what I'm saying? The, the political polarization that we are living through is in, due, uh, in part due to what sociologists are calling the big sort. Um, and this is interesting to me. This has kind of become a... a a phrase that, that just sort of captures our culture. Because more and more, 
we only group together with people that are already like us. More and more. More and more, we don't even know people that aren't like us. People who don't think like us, or vote like us, or live like us, or dress like us, or spend money like us, or act like us. More and more, we only do life with other people that we think are just like us. And sociologists tell us that one of the reasons for that is is just kind of geographic. It's just the way that things go. Because roughly one-third of Americans now live in cities and suburbs, which are, by nature, more progressive and, for the most part, wealthier. While two-thirds of Americans live in rural areas or small towns or like post-industrial cities that are in decline. And they are, overall, less progressive and less wealthy. But it's not just geography that sorts us, right? And we know this. We're also sorted digitally. And you know this because once you start to go down a certain path digitally on YouTube or on your web browser or on social media or whatever it is, you will be fed more of what it is that you already look at. Our our digital habits actually serve, and sociologists are saying this, our digital habits actually serve to radicalize us. And as we spend less time face-to-face and relate more digitally, one of the huge side effects is epidemic levels of loneliness. More and more people have less and less close friends. We looked at some of the statistics last week. People have less other people that they can process life with So the fear and the unsettled feelings and the worry and all of the changes that are happening, many people have little to nobody to process that stuff with. Then we know that depression and anxiety are on the rise in America. Um, Clinical psychologists Jacqueline Olds and Richard Schwartz, in their book entitled The Lonely American, argue that much of what is diagnosed or called depression, much of it is actually just like intense loneliness. We, we aren't wired to thrive in isolation. So we're turning to all kinds of stuff to try to make ourselves feel better. Uh, Americans, con- Americans consume almost 99% of the world's hydrocodone and 81% of its oxycodone. Like as a society, we are desperate to numb the pain. This week I heard about a study where, where rats were put in two different cages and given a stimulant, which is like water plus morphine. Um, researchers and doctors, they call it rat heroin. Um, but what they, so in this study, what they did is they put a rat alone in a cage, all by itself, isolated in a cage with the rat heroin. And then they put other rats grouped together in a separate cage, also with access to as much rat heroin as they want. Get this. The lonely rats, the isolated rats, drank five times as much morphine water as the rats that were in a group together. And the hypothesis is that for social creatures, isolation leads to addiction. It's creating all sorts of unhealthy dependencies, all sorts of unhealthy ways of coping. And one way of coping that we talked about last week one, one strategy to, to try to make ourselves feel better is what we call tribalism. So humans are tribal. Like, we're inclined to divide the world into us and them, right? Go Seahawks, down with the 49ers. You know what I'm saying? 
But, but tribal, tribalism isn't really community in a sense. It's more like anti-community. Tribalism at its, it, at its purest is not based on mutual love, but on mutual hate. It's not, it's not based on what you're for. It's more based on what you're against. And yet tribalism is a way to, to try to ease our pain. And it comes so naturally, in part because having enemies helps me feel better about myself. Right? It achieves a, this psychological desire that I have for self-preservation. Having enemies serves to give me someone else to blame. Enemies give me the sense of, like, you know what, this is what's wrong, you know, this is what's wrong with the world. Okay? They are the problem. And so you can look at the world and then you just can fill in your own, your own they. And of course, for lonely people, enemies give us a tribe to belong to. For the desperately lonely, anti-community is better than no community, right? It's better to scream at people online and become a part of the digital mob than to just sit in your apartment scared and alone. Right now, fear and loneliness uh, are being preyed upon, and you know this, by a vast emerging industry some are calling polytainment. Uh, This lethal mix of politics, journalism, and entertainment. Like, politicians, journalists, and tech companies are actually making billions of dollars, one click at a time, and harnessing tens of millions of votes off of our widespread loneliness, fear, and anger. And that's not to say that, like, all politicians or, or journalists or tech companies are bad. Uh, they're not. Obviously, they're not all bad. And I'm grateful for whatever, whatever bit of them is, is good or the ones that are good. I'm grateful for those who serve well. I mean, the reality is we need, we need good people in power, not no people in power. But, but let's not be naive. There are powerful people that have a vested interest in stoking the fire of our hate and fear. People who have a vested interest in you having an enemy. Tribalism is profitable. It's like super profitable. And so it's becoming more and more and more pronounced. I mean, this is, this is what our culture feels like to me right now. This, this, here's how it feels to me. It feels like, you know, how do you know if, 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 if someone is a good person these days? How do you know? Well, for many, you, you know a person is, is a good person primarily because they hate all the right things. Right? Because they are angry about all the right things. And and we think of this as community, but it's not. It's like anti-community. And so we are losing people. We're losing friends and family and brothers and sisters. We're losing each other as many of us become more and more and more radical. As we become more and more and more tribal. We're losing each other and we're becoming lonelier than ever before. And when you think about it, political polarization is, is really nothing new. I mean, tribalism is a human condition that, that stems from the fall. I mean, what began really in a hardcore way with Cain and Abel has essentially torn the world apart ever since. Um, but today, some of you are just like, this is awful. <laughs> I know. Uh, and so today, I, I, just, I, I, want, what I, hear, I want us to focus on the good news. I want us to focus on the gospel to remember that even in the midst of all of this mess, God is up to something beautiful. Because into this world of tribe against tribe came Jesus of Nazareth, who literally 
gave his life to turn enemies into family. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us to reconcile us, not just to God, but also to reconcile us to each other. Jesus came into this world and suffered its brokenness and gave his life to create a new multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-class family of God. I mean, you guys, in, in Paul's theology in the New Testament, when you sit down to a table with people who don't look like you, think like you, act like you, other than you all happen to follow Jesus together, that's a prophetic witness to the principalities and powers, to the spiritual evil in the heavenly realms, that their reign of terror over human history is coming to an end, that their days are numbered, that Jesus is now Lord, that there is a new king, that there is a new kingdom, there's a new family, there is a new humanity. And to the principalities and powers in the spiritual realms, it says, your reign will end, and this taco night with these seven people is proof of it. <laughs> right? This is the Jesus that we follow. The Jesus who said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Jesus goes on to say in the next verse, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, sometimes the peacemakers are persecuted. They will see God and they will experience the kingdom, but it might all come with a cost. Because when you think about it, what happened to Jesus at the end of the story? Was everybody just sitting around singing Kumbaya? Is that the end of the story? Like, right, like around it? No. They killed him, right? They executed him. They said, you are the problem. You will destroy our nation. We hate you. You are the enemy. We will kill you. We will literally end your life. And yet that's what it took to bring enemies together. Through his death, Jesus brought relational life, and he showed us the way to the kingdom. Um, so to participate in the kingdom, both now and forevermore, um, the little brother of Jesus, uh, James, painted the picture of the kingdom like this. I love these words from James, chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. James writes, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. How much does our world need that right now? Kingdom life is about being a, a peacemaker. Now, please notice, he doesn't say being a peacekeeper. A, a peacekeeper's job is to, like, maintain the status quo, even when the status quo is not good, when, when, when injustice is the norm. A peacemaker's job is to make peace, and the implication is where there is no peace. Uh, one, like, one promotes the status quo, the other like creatively produces change. So a peacemaker finds a way to bring enemies together around a table, to create a space of, of listening and love and repentance and reconciliation, to turn enemies, not just, in, not just into, like, to turn them into family. And this is exactly what Jesus does. So we're going to look together at Mark chapter 2, and this is a famous passage. There's so much awesomeness in here. Okay, Mark chapter 2, starting with verse 13. Mark writes, Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. 
a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now it's easy, so easy for us in our culture to misread a story, this story, with a kind of like Sunday school sentimentality. As if the moral of the story really boils down to this. Be nice to all people. But notice, this was outrageous to those that were watching from the outside. Now, we misread this if we see this as a nice, cute little story. Because we have no 21st like, equivalent for a tax collector. And you're like, yes, we do. We have the IRS. No, it is not the same. <laughs> you can hate them all you want. No, you can't. Because, anyway, okay. In, in the first century, here's the thing. Let me give you a little background. In the first century, Israel was a political powder keg. It was an explosion waiting to happen, constant tension. Why? Because the Jews were under the boot of the Roman Empire. There was injustice of all kinds inflicted on them by the Romans. But one of the most like, miserable kinds of injustice was financial. They were facing these crushing tax rates. In fact, some historians now argue that the tax rate was as high as 80 to 90 percent. I mean, <laughs> like... No, really, 80 to 90. So, so vast numbers of people were living hand-to-mouth on their own ancestral land. Now, Matthew was a Jewish man, okay, Levi, Matthew was a Jewish man who collected taxes against Jews for the Romans. And this is how the Romans would, would do it in occupied territories. They would hire locals uh, of this conquered people group to collect their taxes for them. Now, when you think about it, why in the world would anyone say yes to that? Because it was exceedingly lucrative. It attracted notoriously corrupt and greedy men because tax collectors could add a fee to Rome's already outrageous tax rate. And by law, they get, the tax collectors themselves got to set that additional fee at whatever they wanted. So Rome might demand that you pay 80% of your crop in taxes to Rome, and then Levi or Matthew could come along and say, actually, pay 90% of your crop. And the Romans allowed him then to just pocket the difference. And as he did this to you, imagine, if he did this to you like a fellow Israelite, you had zero leverage to do anything to mitigate against it because standing behind Levi was an entire Roman battalion enforcing it. Imagine how you would feel about tax collectors. They were, they were extremely wealthy, yet they were at the bottom of society. Like they were on par with, with what are called here sinners, which is like a New Testament, nice New Testament code word or way of saying sex workers. 
Like, and after inviting this tax collector to become one of his disciples, what? Where does Jesus go next? To a dinner party at Matthew's house. <laughs> Jesus has dinner with tax collectors and sex workers. Now, why did tax collectors, and, and when we think about it, that, that's kind of interesting. Why did tax collectors hang out with sex workers? Well, if you think about this, if you were a, a lonely but very rich Jewish tax collector who was despised by society, how in the world would you go about making yourself feel better? Maybe hire sex workers. Like a rat in a cage by itself drinks five times as much rat heroin, right? You have to find a way to medicate the pain of your life. So here is a normal dinner party for wealthy tax collectors, all the usual tax collectors and their usual sex workers. But on this night, the party takes on a little different feel. Rabbi Jesus and his apprentices break onto the scene. You guys, this isn't just like awkward. This was unheard of. No rabbi would ever like defile himself in this way. So while it's easy for us to like sit back and judge the response of those heartless Pharisees, it makes a ton of sense why they were feeling how they felt. This was no small statement by Jesus. This was radical. And Jesus takes his young apprentices into this crazy scene. And now we read this and we think, well, isn't that cool? That's because we live in a free country. We, we live in a culture with a high comfort for both taxes and sexuality without boundaries. Right? I mean, it's not a big deal to us. So maybe think of it this way. Imagine, try to get into your mind whoever your like, deplorables are. Like whoever it is that you think is just like the scum of the earth. Um, whoever it is that you think, you know, the world would be better if these people were eradicated from the face of the earth. You have some. So who are the people that do so much damage to other people and society that honestly the world would be better off without them? I was thinking about like throwing out some examples of people, you know, groups of people that come to mind or categories of people that come to mind, but I'm not going to do it. And the reason I'm not even going to throw those out there is because for some of you, the very idea that Jesus would sit down and eat with those people would rock you to your foundation. So you can come up with your own group of deplorables, and that would be like the 21st century equivalent of our story. This was not a cute or sentimental or compelling story. For, the, for people in the culture of Jesus, this was disgraceful. Uh, and the worst thing, uh, like the worst of the worst in first century Israel, were they were tax collectors, right? And they were sex workers. And who does Jesus go and eat with? Tax collectors and sex workers. And in so doing... He's raising the horizon of possibility over their life. He's inviting them into a new future, a new family, a new reality. But to, to really feel the weight of this scene, it's important to know something else. Meals meant a lot more in that society than they do in ours. Now, in every culture, meals are a type of boundary markers. Like Meals can, can really bring people together. Or they can separate them. They can keep them apart. I mean, think about the pre-civil rights restaurants with no black sign on the door. And even today, meals, meals bring people together, but they also separate. Like even in our progressive Northwest culture, restaurants still sort us. They do. It's not as blatant as it was in the 40s or 50s, obviously, with overt discrimination. But restaurants sort 
They sort us through cost, and they sort us through location. We still have, in our culture, we still have high society, and we still have low society. And the two sides rarely cross over. The educated and the wealthy eat in certain places, while the uneducated and those with less means eat in other places. Also, as a general rule, even today, we eat with friends or we eat with family, right? We rarely, if ever, eat with strangers, unless you go to like, what is it, Benihana's or something like that, and you're sitting with 12 people, and most of us won't go there just because of that. Not to mention, if that guy slips for a second with that knife, it's, you know, you know, so... We don't, we don't eat with strangers. We don't want to eat with strangers. And we sure as heck don't want to eat with our enemies. Now, this is true of all societies, but this was especially true of first century Jewish society. There's a German New Testament scholar named Joachim Jeremias, and he writes this. He says, In the East, even today, to invite a person to a meal uh, was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing life. In Judaism in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house has spoken over the unbroken bread. The inclusion of sinners into the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. Pastor John Mark Comer, a guy I really like, said it like this. He said, Jesus got himself killed for who he ate dinner with. And he goes on to point out that Jesus had these elaborate meals and celebrations and, and all of that. He didn't even own a home. But even when he was in someone else's home, it's like Jesus always became the host. Meaning he, he was always welcoming people into God's love and he was always welcoming them, welcoming them into community. But this completely unorthodox way of doing community, the use of meals and a table that brought enemies together, it had a profound effect on his young apprentices that followed Jesus most closely. We're going to jump to the next chapter in Mark, chapter 3, starting with verse 13. And we get a picture of this band of dudes that were following Jesus around. And at first glance, you read it and you go, okay, it's like you kind of skip over it. When we, when we take a look at who was in that group, it's stunning. Verse 13, when Jesus, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So there's this large group of people that follow Jesus and consider themselves disciples. But now he's, he's pulling in his most inner core 12 dudes. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, another name for Levi, the tax collector. Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So not only did Matthew, a tax collector, not only was he called to be one of Jesus' disciples, that's crazy. And not just like one of the hundreds of disciples, but one of, the, one of the inner circle that followed Jesus, and one of the 12. But notice Jesus also called a man that we really don't read about a lot. He's not a very famous dude. Uh, he, he called a man that we know as Simon the Zealot. 
Now, it's really easy to just slip, like, slip over that until you understand what it is. All we know about him is that before he became an apostle, because there's not much told about him other than that, but before he joined Jesus and the disciples, he was a zealot. What in the world does that mean? Let me give you a little background on that. The zealots in the first century uh, were like a first century violent group of far-right Jewish nationalists who used guerrilla tactics against Rome. Some of you are like, what? The Zealots were a first century violent group of far-right Jewish nationalists who used guerrilla tactics against Rome. One of Jesus' disciples. They were also called the Sicarii, which is an Aramaic word that means dagger man, because they'd carry a small dagger called a sicca, and they would hide it in their tunics. And what they would do, they were notorious for infiltrating in the middle of a crowd or a marketplace or a very crowded event, and they would slip up behind a Roman soldier or sometimes just behind a Roman supporter, someone like Levi, and they would quickly slit their throat and then disappear into the crowd. A zealot was, was basically a domestic terrorist. You guys, both Simon the Zealot and Matthew the, the tax collector are at Jesus' table as bros. I mean, can you imagine the tension as they're walking along the road or they're hanging around the fire or they're eating dinner? You know, Matthew's eyeing the dagger like, dude. I mean, because hatred and violence ran wild between these two parties. Yet, you guys, these are two of the founding apostles of the church of Jesus. Well, what happened to their politics? We don't know. I mean, the, the New Testament is just silent on the issue. We don't even know much about what Jesus thought about the Roman Empire. What's clear is that he was convinced that we belong to another kingdom. Jesus was very outspoken about the kingdom of God, which in its day was a sociopolitical statement in and of itself. Many scholars uh, argue that Jesus was deliberately quiet, that he was provocatively and intentionally silent on the raging political issues of his own day, and that his silence was a greater statement than anything that he could have ever said. Now, we don't know what happened to, to Simon and Matthew's politics. All we know is these two former enemies, at least one of whom was extremely violent in the past, became brothers in the family of God following the, the nonviolent, loving, compassionate, suffering way of Jesus. Now, you see, this is what Jesus does. He's a peacemaker. He turns enemies first into a guest at his table, like even if it's at his rich friend's table, and then he turns guests into family. And this is still what Jesus does. But now, through his body, through us, through the church, through you and me, through any who are willing to learn his way from him. This is his primary call on us as a community of his followers together. And that means that our primary call is not necessarily to get our candidate elected or to find a way to get our enemy eradicated in the culture wars. Now, I'm not saying that we don't call out injustice. I'm not saying that. Don't hear that. And I'm not saying that there's not a place for politics. There absolutely is. 
But we need to be clear, the primary call of Jesus on each of us and on us as a family together is the same as it's always been, to open our home and to set our table and to follow him into peacemaking whenever possible. To do all that we can, as much as it depends on us, to turn enemies into family. Now, I have, you guys, I have so many thoughts about what this looks like. It was really hard for me to just sort of narrow this down and figure out how to, how to crush the end of this message. Uh, and so I could go, I could like go on and on. I just want to share, I just want to share a very simple thought. And I think it's a thought that comes directly out of the life of Jesus and this passage in Matthew 2. It's, it's Jesus' invitation to, uh, to all of us, and it's this. Find a way to have table fellowship with someone who isn't like you. This is not natural. This is hard. This takes intentionality. This takes walking around in the world with our head up. This takes a willingness to get outside of our comfort zone. And I will tell you guys, this is not naturally what I do at all. I'm as nervous about being around people that aren't like me as anybody. But the more I do this, the more I see real beauty in it. And I have felt God moving in it. Um, this summer, and I've mentioned this before, Jen and I have tried to be like intentionally social. Because in the regular ministry year from September to June, our nights get filled up with so much structured church stuff. And that means we don't have a lot of space to just hang out with people. And so this summer, with a lot of that stuff on pause, we've tried to be very intentionable. Intentionable. I was going to say that that sounded like former President George Bush, but then that would be a political statement, and people would get upset, and I'd get email. Don't send me emails. We tried to be intentional about uh, making like informal connections with people, and that has included a lot of people from Brookview, but it's also included some people that are outside of Brookview. Um, Jen and I had our next door neighbors over for dinner a few weeks ago. And they're a young couple, and this is their first house, and they moved into the house right at the beginning of COVID, and it was a really weird time, and so we didn't get to know them very well at all. In fact, um, they, from the time they moved in, they've, they've gotten pregnant and already had a baby, and, um, and it's embarrassing to say that we've only spoken to them like a handful. They're our next-door neighbors, and we've only spoken to them like a handful of times. It's just not good. So a few weeks ago, we, we finally had them over for dinner, and they just threw their baby in a front pack and kicked it with us at our house, and then they, they had dinner, and then they, they stayed around for s'mores on our deck, and they hung out with us for hours. And I, I had, going into this, I had no idea what they'd be like, but man, they're like really sweet people. He works for Microsoft, and she's a nurse, um, and they're just great people. But as we talked, it became obvious that he is really opposed to church. Now, she grew up in the church, and some of the stories was like, oh, you have a background. He didn't. He has no interest. And we haven't been able to dig into that all that much yet, but that came up because he asked us, what do you do? <laughs> and so it was like, well, we, we run a church. And he's like, what does that entail? I mean, like, I know you guys show up on Sundays. Do you do anything outside of Sundays? <laughs> uh. 
So we told them about the village. I mean, how awesome is that, to be able to tell somebody about the village? We told them about our life and ID groups and the way that people are coming together and being in community online and in person in whatever way they're comfortable, even in this season. We told them about the Nourishing Network and all that our church family is doing with that. We told them about Cedar Way and Vision House. We told them about our work in Haiti. We told them about Soccer Club. And it was pretty cool because as we got through kind of running through this list and talking about all the administration involved in all of these things, he's like, he's like, his eyes just lit up and he was like, man, that stuff sounds awesome. I, I, I didn't, I'm like, that's awesome. That's really cool for the people that are on the receiving end. And it's really cool for the people that are on the giving end. That's like super good stuff. He's like, I need to get more involved in that kind of stuff. But I'm not, just, I'm not interested in the whole God thing and the whole church thing. So if you just take God out of it, the rest of it sounds awesome, you know. <laughs> but, but at the end of the night, um, we just had this, like, running conversation all through the night about all kinds of stuff. And they, they were in no rush to leave. They just kept hanging around, like, go home. No, it was like, it was like they're so comfortable here. You know, this is really good. And we just, we just asked them about them. And we listened with no judgment. And they asked us about us, and, and, a, and a bit of a bond has started to form. You guys, it was a really cool thing. Now, this is something that we will do more with them for sure. Well, then we, and we had another couple over not long ago, um, one that we've had over a lot over the years. Um, several years ago, Brooklyn made a new friend at school, and her friend is being raised by two moms, Deb and Caitlin. And so over the years, we've, we've actually hung out with them quite a bit. They come over for dinner, and we go there. And you know what, you guys? I adore them. They're, they're kind, they're funny, they're compassionate, they're selfless, they're amazing conversationalists. And I just really, really enjoy them. So a few weeks ago, uh, one of our nights that we had available, we invited, and they came over for s'mores. And we just hung around the fire, and we got caught up. And, and, and they've walked through some really tough stuff in recent years, and so have we. And so we share with them, and, and they share with us, and it's, it's cool. When, when the earthquake happened in Haiti a couple weeks ago, one of the first texts that I got was from Deb. I mean, you wouldn't expect that, would you? A pastor and a lesbian couple. But the, one of the first people to say anything. I saw the news. How's Cameron? How's your son? And you guys, this couple, Deb and Caitlin, have been such an unexpected blessing. And some of you might be going, okay, but do you talk about Jesus with them? Actually, we do. Because they ask about it. They bring it up. They bring it up all the time. I mean, when we when one of the first nights that we all got together, uh, uh, Caitlin asked. She just looks at me and she's like, "How in the world did you become a pastor?" <laughs> and I was like, "So I, I told them about my life before Jesus, and I told them about what God has done in me, and I told them about our church and how much I love it." And then they just kept asking questions, and so I just kept saying more and. And, and you guys, they, they listened to all of it, and they listened to it really deeply, and they weren't opposed by it or offended by it or turned off by it or any of that. They were just curious and kind, just like we are with them, curious and kind. 
And the truth is, the more that I get to know them, the more I respect them. They're amazing people. And I'm glad that we're friends. Through meals at a table or wine or s'mores around a fire, God has done something really cool over the years. Now, where will all of this lead in the future? I have no idea. But we love them and they love us. And they're an unexpected blessing for us. And God is building a fantastic bridge through meals together. Now, I don't know who in your life might fit into that kind of category for you. But I just want to encourage you, whoever it is, get to know them better. Pursue it. I don't just mean like acknowledge them with a quick passing comment. I mean like carve out space and sit down around a table together for extended time. Open your home to them for a meal. Pour into them. And, and if you don't have a home that's conducive to that kind of thing, then I just want to say, that's okay. Be creative. I mean, Jesus figured out how to do this at other rich people's houses. <laughs> Get creative. Find a way to hang out with them, even if it's not around a meal. Find a way. It doesn't have to be around a meal, but find a way to hang out with them that is warm and inviting. Go for a long walk. Do an activity together. I was talking to a man in our church um, this, this last week, and he's, he's in a men's, a men's group, and he was like this, I talked to him last year, he's like, this isn't as, this is not as, as intimate as I would like it to be. I hear about the other groups, and I don't love these guys the way everybody else loves their people. I was like, that's honest, and he's like, well, so he's like, but I would like to. I would, I, so, so he, he just has been on a mission in the last, like, six to eight months to bring deeper, you know, relational intimacy into this group with the guys. So I find out, I talked to him a couple, weeks, like a couple days ago, and I find out like he's setting up times to go for walks with all the guys in his group and just get to know them and hang out with them. Like, that's creative. And to tell you the truth, the guys in that group are very different from each other. But he's just pushing through all of that to build the relationship. It doesn't have to be somebody that's outside the church. It can be somebody that's inside the church. But find something to do that promotes relationship building and do it with somebody who's not just like you. And if you're sitting here and someone is, is coming to mind for you, I just want to say, don't, like, don't, ign don't ignore that. Whether it's, it's someone you know, inside the church or outside, think about a next step with that person or, or a group of people, if that's what's coming to mind, or a whole family or, or just a group. Find a way to be open, open and inviting and available to them. And if it's around an actual meal, awesome. If that doesn't work, get creative. Jesus is inviting us to be his body to the world now. And part of, the, part of the way that we have to do that is to be with people. And if you're in a spot where you're like, I, I'm only comfortable on Zoom, then Zoom with people. We have to be with people. It, 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 you can't just, like, just serve people from afar, you know, we have to be willing to go be with people. Jesus constantly made people guests at a table, and before long, those people, they turned from guests into family. And I think his very simple command to us is still, go and do likewise. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful for your son Jesus and for his life and example 
that challenges the heck out of me, but is so, so compelling. And for us as a body, uh, as a church, as a family, God, I pray that more and more and more, you would help us to break out of the tribalism that our culture is sort of pushing us toward these days and make us into people who, who cross all kinds of boundaries to go where people are, to build relationships, to sit down with them, to hear their story, to get to know their heart, to, to hear what, 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 what they're excited about, what scares them, what, what, what hurts they've had, to just be with them. God, we don't just want to be a, a church that serves people from afar. We don't just want to be people that serve people from afar. Make us into, uh, make us into just incredibly hosp- hospitable people who know how to serve and how to love and how to be community builders. God, would you use us in that way? Our world is desperate for it. Would you use us in that way? Amen.